Chapter 15 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett, Melbourne, Australia. Hellenic History by George Willis, Botsford. Chapter 15. The Age of Pericles. 2. The Athenian Democracy. Democracy, the Correlate of Imperialism A necessary correlate of the foreign and imperial policy of Athens during this age was that her government should continue its progress towards absolute democracy, for it was the masses who were chiefly interested in the plunder of conquest, the extension of the empire, and the concentration of jurisdiction in the hands of the popular courts, the popular assembly, ecclesia, the essential institution of government was the popular assembly, embracing theoretically and potentially all adult male citizens, practically all with the leisure and inclination to attend. The government did not as yet pay for attendance, hence the masses were present, but rarely, on occasions of special interest or excitement. During the Peloponnesian War, the number seldom reached 5,000 and must usually have been far smaller, though the patriot considered it his duty to be present and to take an interest in public affairs. One complains, Never in my lifetime, man or boy, was I so vexed as at this present moment, to see the nicks at this time of the morning, quite empty, when the assembly should be full. Functions of the Assembly from the time of Pericles, there were four stated meetings every Prithani, besides extraordinary sessions. Certain stated meetings were for special purposes. The first assembly in each Prithani reviewed the conduct of magistrates, suspending from office anyone accused of malversation and handing him over to a popular court for trial. This was an extreme use of the principle of the recall. In case of acquittal, he resumed his office. Under these circumstances, the magistrates, deprived of all independence, were limited strictly to executing the will of the assembly. The same meeting considered the grain supply and the defence of the country. The second assembly of the Pratani is assigned to suppliants, and at this meeting, anyone is free, on depositing the suppliant's olive branch, to speak to the people on any matter, public or private. The two other meetings are occupied with the remaining subjects, and the laws require them to deal with three questions connected with religion, three relating to heralds and embassies, and three on secular subjects. Restricted by the laws and by the 500, experience and self-restraint. The principle was accepted that not the people, but the laws governed. Under the statutes of the fathers, the assembly deliberated on the question proposed, and all had a right to speak, whether officers or private persons. The measures were initiated by the 500, generally on the advice of a leading statesman, and the people decided. If few of us are originators, says Pericles, we are all sound judges of a policy. Aristotle explains... Any member of the assembly taken separately is certainly inferior to the wise man. The state, however, is made up of many individuals. 
and as a feast to which all the guests contribute is better than a banquet furnished by one man, so the multitude is a better judge of many things than an individual. Excepting when the people were violently moved by fear, hatred, or other like passion, the principle here enunciated undoubtedly held true, especially in a body of men more experienced in public affairs and more appreciative of their responsibility than could be any equally large gathering of citizens in a modern state, the Council of 500. The theory that, under the laws, the people themselves were sovereign, that the whole folk, year by year, in parity of service, is our king, could not be put into strict practice. The actual administration had to be trusted mainly to a smaller, more wieldy body. The Council of 500, organised in ten groups of foremen, as previously explained. These groups served in rotation as committees for governmental control and for initiating decrees affecting the administration. Much of the supervisory power, formerly wielded by the Areopagites, was transferred to this council, 462. It examined, accordingly, the fitness of candidates for office, arranged for their election or sortition, and cooperated with them in most of their duties. It kept a strict watch over them, especially over those who handled money, permitting no money to be received or dispersed, apart from its supervision. For a time, it had full power to punish for misuse of office. Furthermore, the council superintended the construction, repair and preservation of triremes or other vessels of war, and of public buildings, inspected the horses belonging to the state, revised the list of the cavalry, and attended to a great multitude of other duties. The most noteworthy of its administrative functions, inherited from the Council of the Areopagus, was its guardianship of the Constitution, involving the right of exercising in crises the power of life and death over both officials and private citizens. Far from giving rein to licence and lawlessness, the Periclean democracy sternly enforced the moral discipline to which the people had grown accustomed under aristocratic rule. The popular Supreme Court, Heliaia. On one side, the assembly was checked by the 500, as it was limited to the program drawn up by the Praetorius. On another side, its action was as effectually controlled by the Heliaia, popular court. The germ of this institution had existed from the time of Solon, but the absence of pay for service, reinforcing the general aristocratic spirit of the constitution, had established the well-to-do in virtual control. Originally, it was a court of appeal from the decisions of the archons, who were men of experience and ability, chosen for their special fitness from the two wealthiest classes. The decline of the archonship, especially through the introduction of sortition fulfilling the office, together with the general progress of democracy, continually increased the importance of the jurors. The age of Pericles further democratised the archonship by opening it to the Zeugitae. Henceforth, any respectable citizen, above the Thetic census, however mean his ability, was eligible. 
Because of their lack of knowledge of the law and their general mediocrity, the archons could no longer act as judges, but became mere clerks with the routine duty of preparing cases for trial and with a nominal presidency of the jury, as will be explained below. Democratization of the law courts, dicasteria. Meanwhile, with the gathering of the people into the city, the attendance on the juries naturally increased. Finally, after the overthrow of the Council of the Areopagus in 462, in the same year Pericles carried a measure for the payment of jurors, probably at the rate of two oboles a day. This act completely democratised the institution, as it enabled the poorest to attend regularly and in large numbers. The introduction of pay should not be too hastily branded as an encouragement to idleness, for the able-bodied generally preferred more remunerative and less confining employment. The typical juror was an old man whose days of manual labour were past. He had served the state as a hoplite or oarsman, and was now drawing his juror's fee in lieu of a pension, for which, however, he had to sit judging day by day from early morn till night. Many had country homes near Athens, and in a comedy of Aristophanes, we see them before daybreak, trudging, lantern in hand, along the road to the city, to be at court on time. Organisation of the courts, reasons for the large juries. There were now 6,000 jurors, drawn annually by lot, 600 from each tribe. Applicants for the service had to be Athenians in the full exercise of their rights, and at least 30 years of age. At the beginning of the year, they were put under oath to give their decisions according to law, and in the absence of a statute covering the case, according to their best judgment and conscience. Normally, they were divided into juries of 501, although we occasionally hear of smaller and larger panels. As the decision was by majority vote, the odd number was to prevent a tie. The most obvious ground for the large jury was to make bribery difficult. Nevertheless, towards the end of the century, the mischief crept in, whereupon the Athenians devised a complicated system of choosing jurors and of assigning them to the several cases, with the result that a man could not ascertain on what case he was to sit till he had entered the courtroom. This precaution substantially eliminated bribery. The large number, furthermore, was to provide against intimidation. The great nobles felt themselves above the laws and would have ridden roughshod over a jury of the modern type, but dared not contemn so numerous an assembly of citizens. The Athenians felt, too, that no smaller number could adequately represent the wishes and interests of the whole people who, if democracy was to be more than a pretense, must needs exercise judicial as well as legislative and executive functions. Pleaders addressed the jurors as citizens and democrats, and in truth the courts were the stronghold of popular government. To these considerations of the Athenians themselves, we may add the fact, important in cultural history, that these large gatherings of men of inherent artistic temperament, who in the assembly, the theatre and the public festivals had nursed their taste in beautiful prose and verse, 
made possible the development of a judicial oratory of universal and eternal literary values. These positive advantages were counterbalanced by defects. A large audience is more subject to passion than a small group of men. An Athenian jury was often moved by political feeling, and especially when the accuser was known to entertain anti-popular sentiments, he was less certain to obtain justice. This defect, however, was but relative. The courts as constituted undoubtedly dispensed fair judgments to a far larger proportion of the citizens than would have been possible under any other arrangement. From the juristic point of view, the system was defective in that it admitted neither of judges nor of a lawyer class. The court was a jury without a judge. Under a mere chairman, who possessed neither the knowledge nor the right to interpret the law or to guide the proceedings. Every man had to plead his own case. He might indeed have recourse to a professional rhetorician who had a smattering of legal knowledge and who for a fee would write his speech for him. Under these circumstances, there was no such thing as case law or precedent. Hence, there could be no consistency in the decisions. Attic law was simpler than is that of any modern state, and it was assumed that every citizen was sufficiently acquainted with the code, but in vain. The jurors were disposed to pay little heed to the letter of the law, and to estimate instead the character of the accused and his value to the state. Has he served the community well, they asked, and if acquitted, will he continue to render good service? However childish it may seem to us, this attitude of mind had its advantages in a small community in which the jurors were personally acquainted with the litigants. It has been urged, too, by modern critics that the system fostered in the Athenians a litigious spirit and a quarrelsomeness which shows itself even in the drama. However that may be, it was an institution well suited to the Athenian temperament, and the typical old juror was thoroughly in love with his work. In Aristophanes' Wasps, when a certain grown-up son had confined his father at home behind bolts and bars, a slave of the household gives the following reason for this severe discipline. He is a law court lover, no man like him. Judging is what he dotes on and he weeps unless he sits on the front bench of all. At night he gets no sleep, no, not one grain. Or if he does the tiniest speck, his soul flutters in dreams about the water clock. The cock which crew from eventide, he said, was tampered with, he knew to call him late, bribed by officials whose accounts were due. Supper scarce done, he clamours for his shoes, hurries ere daybreak to the court, and sleeps, stuck like a limpet to the doorpost there. Such is his frenzy, and the more you chide him, the more he judges. So with bolts and bars we guard him straightly, that he stir not out. The Process of Legislation In the time of Pericles, laws were commonly drawn up by special committees appointed by the Assembly. The draft of such a law was reported to the 500, 
who brought it before the assembly for confirmation. Shortly after Pericles, the following process was adopted. In the first Pratani of every year, the Thesmothetae brought the laws under review before the assembly, first those relating to the 500, then the general statutes, next those dealing with the nine archons, and lastly with the other magistrates. On this occasion, any citizen could propose a new law and the repeal of the corresponding old one. Sufficient notice was given of such proposals by repeated readings in assembly and by posting near the marketplace. In the fourth session of the same Pratani, the assembly provided for the pay of a special body of jurors, termed nomothite, legislators, who were to pass upon the bills brought before them. The number of nomothite varied according to circumstances. The proceedings before their body took the form of a trial, in which the proposer of the new measure prosecuted the existing law which he wished to repeal. It was defended by advocates appointed by the assembly. Then, without taking part in the debate, the nomothite proceeded to vote. In case of a majority in favour of the bill, it became thereby a law. Safeguards of the process. Laws contrasted with decrees. It is to be noted that legislation was possible but once a year, and was surrounded with most careful safeguards. By committing it to a limited number of mature citizens bound by oath, the Athenians kept it from the storms of politics. It is a remarkable fact, too, that the initiative only was vested in the assembly, whereas the deliberation and the vote belonged to a jury, that in other words the legislative function was not differentiated from the judicial. The acts here under consideration were strictly laws, nomoi, dealing with the fundamental and permanent things of government. They are to be distinguished from decrees, sephismata, which had to do with the current administration. A decree of the council alone held good for the official year, but if approved by the people, it was valid till repealed. The writ against illegality, graphe paranomen. Another function of the courts was the protection of the constitution. The downfall of the council of the Areopagus removed the last conservative check upon the government. In the judgment of Ephialtes, the people were no longer children in politics, but had reached a maturity of experience that made them capable of protecting their own government without the aid of any form of paternalism. The definite instrument in their hand for this purpose was the writ against illegality. Under this procedure, any citizen could stop deliberation on any subject in the assembly by declaring under oath his intention to test the legality of the proposal before a popular court. It was incumbent upon him, accordingly, to prosecute the proposer of the decree or law. If convicted, the accused was liable to a heavy fine, to disenfranchisement, or even to death. The prosecutor, on the other hand, who failed to obtain a fifth part of the votes, was punishable with a fine of a thousand drachmas 
and disqualified from bringing further prosecutions. This precaution was taken against ill-founded or malicious accusations. Originally, the writ was applied only to actual illegality, but in time, politicians began to use it against any proposals which they could represent as detrimental to the community. Statesmen then found in it a weapon for assailing one another. As a milder and less dangerous instrument of political warfare, it superseded ostracism. Ordinary cases at law. The great majority of cases before the courts, however, were of the ordinary civil and criminal types. Jurisdiction in homicide still remained with the Areopagites and the Ephetai. The Archon, according to the nature of the suit, prepared the case for trial, writing out and placing under seal the statements of plaintiff and defendant and the testimonies of witnesses. The same authority presided over the court that tried the case. The witnesses were present, not to be cross-questioned, but merely to acknowledge their testimony. The jurors, not the chairman, had a right to interrupt a speaker if he digressed or spoke obscurely, and each party to the trial could interrogate the other and require an answer. After the proceedings and testimonies were given, the jurors, without deliberation, proceeded to vote by secret ballot. A condemned man was executed without delay. The judicial system applied to the Allies. The extension of Athenian jurisdiction over the Allies greatly increased the amount of judicial business at Athens and necessitated a multiplication of the courts. Although many juries were engaged simultaneously in hearing suits throughout the year, except on assembly days and festivals, cases awaiting trial accumulated to the injury of the parties concerned. While grumbling at delays, the Allies made no complaint of corruption or favouritism. Though far from ideal, the system secured to the masses a large degree of justice and contributed to civilization a treasure of eloquence. The Magistrates The spirit of democracy found expression, too, in the multiplication of officials till the number became enormous. Aristotle reckons 700 at home and a number unknown to us but doubtless large for the empire. They usually served in boards, normally of ten. Most of them were filled annually, by lot, without the privilege of reappointment, on the theory that all citizens above the Thetes were competent to the ordinary duties of administration and were equally entitled to a share in it. Officers requiring special qualifications particularly military posts, were elective and could be indefinitely repeated. The generals, Tartija. Since the great constitutional act of 487-6, the generals were the highest magistrates. They not only commanded the army and navy, but embraced most of the functions falling in a modern state to the ministry or cabinet. They kept informed on foreign affairs, conducted negotiations not otherwise provided for, and requested the Prytaneus to call special sessions of the Assembly in order to introduce foreign ambassadors. They attended to the defences of the country and the preparations for war. The Assembly could leave all equal, or confer the absolute command upon one, 
or appoint one or more of the board to special duties. Like other officials, the generals were subject to deposition and trial for maladministration. The board had to keep in touch with the assembly, and the member who excelled as orator and statesman inevitably took the lead of his colleagues. It was through this position that Pericles governed during a great part of his administration. Any Athenian, whether an officer or a private citizen, who undertook to guide the policy of the state, had to bear a heavier weight of responsibility than has been necessary in any less democratic form of government. The masses who constituted the assembly, fullers, cobblers, coppersmiths, stonemasons, hucksters and farmers, could not be expected to have the same acquaintance with the details of policy, especially in foreign relations, that might be presupposed in a select body of public men, such, for instance, as the Roman Senate or a modern parliament. The democracy, accordingly, had to place greater trust in its advisers and require of them expert knowledge. The statesman recognised this condition and ran his risk. If his enterprise failed, he was liable to severe punishment for having deceived the people. Where great interests are at stake, explains an orator in the assembly, we who advise ought to look further and weigh our words more carefully than you whose vision is limited. And you should remember that we are accountable to nobody. If he who gave and he who followed evil counsel suffered equally, you would be more reasonable in your ideas. But now, whenever you meet with a reverse, led away by the passion of the moment, you punish the individual adviser for his error of judgment, but your own error you condone. The speaker recognised the necessity of the condition, though he wished it might be different. He knew well that the situation had its bright side. If a statesman succeeded, his glory was all the more splendid. The democracy was far more inclined than the earlier aristocracy to heroise its great men. In evidence, we may adduce the almost unvarying loyalty with which the commons supported Pericles during his long career. End of section 15, The Age of Pericles, The Athenian Democracy